So as you know, on Unscalable, we like to speak to people who have adopted an unscalable approach to growing their businesses. So today we're super excited to have our first ever guest on the show, Rand Fishkin. Now, it's not every day you get to um, chat to an author of a book that you have on your bookshelf in your study. So Gavin, uh, how did you manage to convince Rand to come on our podcast? Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, I mean, from my perspective, I thought if anyone believes in taking an unscalable approach to growing their business, it's Rand. I've obviously been super inspired by Rand for years from his days at Moz and now obviously, obviously with Spark Toro. Um, actually, Martina, I'm not sure if I told you, but last year when we were going through the whole acquisition process and deciding whether I should sell or not, I was actually reading Rand's book um, on, my, on my commute into the office. And one thing really resonated for me, uh, Rand talks about how as a company grows, essentially, as a founder, you kind of move further away from what you love to do. So I found last year, as we grew Sendable yeah, up to 50 employees, I was doing more of the operational stuff, the admin, you know, kind of recruiting, that kind of thing. And that really had a profound impact on my decision. You know, I was, I was driving and thinking about, should I or shouldn't I sell? Is it the right time? Should I keep Sendable going for 30 years, 50 years? Um, and that, that chapter really resonated with me. So I felt I needed to have uh, Rand on the show um, and uh, ask him a few questions about his perspective on uh, kind of running a company as big as Moz. And then starting over. Uh, so Rand, just want to say welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Martin, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, and it's it's so great to be here, Gavin. I'm uh, I'm really glad that I get to join it's you nice both. nice to have you on. Okay, so before we begin, we like to start every episode with a quick icebreaker. We've got this box of cards. So Ooh. I haven't chosen one. It's not pre-selected. So you can actually choose. Do you want me to go from the front, the back, or the middle? Where are you feeling? What are you feeling? Middle. Middle. Right. Let's go. Middle for sure. Okay. I'm just really <laughs> glad to not be in the hot seat this time around. <laughs> ah, there we go. This is a good one. What's the most fun party you've ever attended? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> What's the most fun party I've ever attended? <laughs> um, okay. This is, this is one of my absolute best... Uh, memories and it is it's it's a little bit food and family centric which is um, unusual but so Geraldine and I my, my wife is Italian so we 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 flew to I think Germany for a conference and then flew down to Naples rented a car uh, in Napoli and then drove out to kind of her family's ancestral village out in uh, the middle of nowhere what's what was it called I think it's called Frigento. And it's just like, you know, sitting up on a hill in um, the Abruzzo region. Um, and it's, uh, you know, two hours from anything. No. <laughs> like there's one yeah. restaurant in the town. There's one bakery. The bakery is usually closed. The restaurant's always closed. <laughs> um, and so we're just like by midday, we're starving. And, you know, finally we like go to her aunt's house. And her aunt has been making, this is her, this is Geraldine's great aunt. And she's been making fresh pasta all day oh. uh, by hand. And it was still to this day, absolutely the greatest meal of my life. I think it was probably 4,000 calories in total <laughs> across like eight courses. I don't know if you, you know, if you've had like home cooked Italian meals, there's basically, you know, they bring out one thing and then, you know, I... The foolish American was like, oh, okay, well, this must be dinner. I'll, I'll eat this. <laughs> oh, no. That, that was a, only the beginning. And pasta's a starter you, there, isn't it? 
pasta yeah. is creamy, creamy, yeah. and then there's secondi, <laughs> and then there's and then there's a fruit course, and then there's coffee, and then there's dessert, and then oh, there's wow. liqueur, and there's little things that come with the coffee and liqueur, and before the primi, there's uh, aperitivo, and after the aperitivo, there's um, you know, the, the like appetizer course. Oh my God. It's just, just incredible. And of course I'm uh, at the same time, I'm trying to listen to all these stories in Italian between uh, probably, you know, uh, about a dozen members of Geraldine's extended family. That's my kind of party. Go at 2 PM and you eat dinner until 10 PM. I am in. I love it. Cool. So as I mentioned, you know, I've sold my business after 12 years. Um, running Sendable. And one of the reasons was to start a new startup. You know, I kind of had that itch again to be a founder again, entrepreneur. Um, And I realized my my superpower has always been starting companies, coming up with ideas, being more creative. And actually your book made me realize just how grateful I am to be a fully bootstrapped founder. Um, You know, at Sendable, our our profits were literally seven figures with 40% margins when I sold. So it was very, very hard to let go of the company at the time. Uh, but now I've, I've suddenly gone from being a CEO of 50 people to nothing, like hero to zero. Um, and I actually feel, I feel like it should be a sequel to your book, kind of lost and found out after you sell a business, like how it feels after setting a, a you know, kind of a really successful company and how lost you feel after that happens. Um, so starting again is really scary. And I just want to know like how you feel, how you, how you found kind of starting over, going from a CEO to a founder again, and how you dealt with that kind of shift in mindset. Yeah. Oh, it's heavy. It is so heavy. It's it's like an intensely um, emotional and mentally taxing process, especially so, you know, Moz was, kind of, was my only startup. I mean, technically I, I also founded um, inbound.org with Darmesh and, you know, we, but that wasn't, that was like a side project type of thing. And so Moz, you know, I'd been there 17 years when I left. Basically, my entire adult life, I dropped out of college, started working at this company, you know, I was deep in debt. My mom and I like found a way to turn it into a, you know, consultancy that could survive. And then it started growing and then we built software and then we raised venture and like this, you know, this business had grown, you know, I mean, for the seven years I was CEO, it was a hundred percent year over year, just right all the way up to, you know, 30 million in revenue and, um, and profitable. And then, and then like, after I stepped down, you know, growth started to slow 50%, 20%, 10%, 4%, right? Just, you know, I think Moz is like eking it out around 50 million, st- still growing. Yeah, I mean, you know, throwing off 5 million in profit every year, whatever. So, like, you know, a, a nice business for sure if it's privately owned, but as a venture backed business, it's just completely doesn't fit the model, doesn't work. And then, you know, I, there's all these things that come with it, right? Like I had, you know, I had a nice salary. I was making $200,000 a year. That's, you know, that's a ton of money for most Americans. Um, it, I was, um, I had a, you know, an executive assistant who worked for me and took care of all these things. I, I had a team who would do things. I, there was a lot of deep unhappiness and stress, um, but it was also very secure, like healthcare is covered, right? Like all these things. And so then, yeah, I'm signing my Moz severance agreement. And, you know, a lot of my, all, all the people in my network, all my, you know, founder friends, right? Folks like yourself, Martine and Gavin, they're like, oh, Rand, you, you got to take some time off and like explore. And, and I'm like, what, 
what do you, what, what do you, what world do you live in? Like I may own whatever, you know, $50 million of wealth on paper, but until somebody buys it, you know, it's not, it's not worth anything. Right. So, um, the day after I left Moz, I started Spark Toro because I needed healthcare. Right. Wow. And like, I, I got, you know, my wife and I need to be covered. We can't have this thing. Right. So I, I had to work out all the mechanics of like, you know, starting the company right away and then getting that kicked off and um, starting to to pay myself basically minimum wage, um, you know, in order to be, to qualify for healthcare under the plans and whatnot. And um, yeah, thank goodness for Obamacare. Cause if it wasn't <laughs> for that. I, I, pro- I mean, I would have been doomed. I couldn't have, I don't even know what I would have done. Like it just would have been untenable, but um, we, yeah, we managed to kind of get it off the ground. And then I, I raised some money from um, angel investors, just like friends and that sort of thing. But yeah, Gavin, you asked about like the mental side of it and that what you, I think what I experienced most was like a, a sense of deep relief that I got to own and control my destiny again, that I could really influence the journey. Cause those last few years at Moz, you know, I just, every day I disagreed with things. I was like, no, this is not how we should be doing. No, we shouldn't be employing this person. No, we shouldn't be making these strategic decisions. So now I got to make all those decisions again. (laughs) And also (laughs) that means success or failure hinges entirely Mm. on you. Mm. You cannot blame anyone else if things don't go amazingly well. Mm. Right. So, you know, I go from a world where I'm sort of like, Ah, uh, you know, I would do things differently and this isn't going well, but you know, I, uh, Hey, you know, I, what can I do to, Oh, I have to do everything. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm vacuuming the office and I, <laughs> and I'm also yeah. making the coffee and I'm also, you know, getting the customers and raising the money and finding the healthcare and getting the accountant and you know, finding my co-founder, all of it. Wow. So um, if you could have done one thing different than all those years ago, what do you think you would have done differently? I would not have stepped down as CEO. I think um, I did not realize how, uh, how much the dynamic would change. I, 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 I sort of thought that I would continue to have a lot of influence and control over direction and, and strategy and those kinds of things. And that, um, yeah, that sort of changed much more rapidly than I was expecting and in in ways that made me very frustrated. And yeah, from there, you know, lots of decisions, I think, that that um, harmed the company's potential. But I mean, Moz is, look, Moz is fine, right? It's like a successful company. Mm-hmm. It's still growing, just not very fast. It obviously is profitable. It employs lots of people. It has, I don't know, 40 30, 40,000 customers, whatever it is. Right. And, um, great, but you know, that's not going to get it to, you know, how does it get five to seven X it's returns on the 30 million that was invested? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. So what are your thoughts on, uh, kind of raising capital versus bootstrapping? I, (laughs) I am really, really grateful that I was able to raise money because, you know, if we, I mean, if I had had to solely bootstrap, I think I would have had to start maybe as a consultant again or like services, right? I, I, you know, I just needed revenue coming in faster. So the the ability to go raise some money in this very unique structure for SparkToro 
It's an LLC. My investors own, you know, units of distribution. We all participate in profit sharing. It's not at all like venture. <laughs> they have to pay ordinary income tax on it, um, which, which like, I, that's like the thing that most investors are just allergic to. A higher tax rate, I'd rather die. You know, that, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Americans are obsessed with low taxes. They're just weird. And so, yeah, I had to find, I had to find investors who were like, wait, I can make profit every year and you don't have to be a unicorn for me to make money. And all I have to do is pay, you know, 35% tax instead of 15%. Sure. Sounds good. Sign me up. Um, and thankfully I had a lot of people in, like that in my network who were not as sort of tax obsessed. Um, and yeah, that enabled, you know, that enabled us to cover healthcare that enabled me to recruit Casey and, and bring him onto the team. It gave us about 18 months to build our product before we launched um, which was absolutely essential because it was a very experimental product. I, I don't know if you played with um, Spark Toro, but it's like yeah. it's in a sector that didn't really exist, yeah. and it does something yeah. that weirdly didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. And so um, we didn't even know if it was going to work when we had the idea. We were like, "Well, mm -hmm. all right, we're going to have to do all this crawling and indexing and build this thing, and then build a search system, and then you know launch it, and let's see if the data is any good." And I think it was probably. It was like nine months before we even could run the very first search to see mm. if it returned useful data. Oh, wow! Wow! <laughs> so, is, is it still is it still you and Casey Casey in the business at the moment, or have you recruited anyone else? And what are your thoughts on like building a team versus outsourcing? I <laughs> um, I think I'm maybe more allergic, and Casey is too, to building a team after our experiences. So Casey, my, my co-founder, he's on the engineering side or technical side. And Casey um, worked at Moz with me for a, you know, a, a number of years. He was a, he was a parole officer in Michigan before that, like just, you know, wild <laughs> career change, um, but had, as many Americans do, had became very quickly disenchanted with the American justice system <laughs> and, um, and just how biased and problematic that is. Anyway, so he, he, you know, he started doing web design, this kind of stuff, came to Moz, worked with me for a few years, went off to, what was he at? HubSpot, Wistia, um, Ookla. So, you know, he worked at tech companies, big and small, funded and not funded. And both of us came to SparkToro with this mentality of, let's keep the team as tiny as possible and use contractors, consultants, agencies for everything. So we, you know, we got a contractor for our, you know, for our design and art, we got contractors for, you know, we have a, a an accountant who does all our stuff, a, ta a tax person who does all our uh, tax stuff, personal and, and business wise. Um, we had consultants to help us with our uh, onboarding structure and our conversion rate optimization and our beta launch and testing and, um, it's been great, right? You, you sort of, you get the very best people at the top of their game who start working instantly. There's no ramp up time. Uh, mm -hmm. and when your budget, you know, if you can't afford them anymore, th there's no hard feelings, right? There's no like, Oh my God, I have to lay this person off. You're just mm -hmm. like, well, I won't renew my contract next month. No problem. It's fine. Right. Yeah. Consultants and agencies are used to that. Right. Oh, I don't have any more work for that person. I don't have to invent jobs for them to do. That's just a, mm. you just don't do it, right? They work for somebody else for a while. It's great. Yeah. We we really love this model. It makes for a ton of freedom and flexibility. The management overhead is incredibly low working with a consultant or an agency, right? Who are used to working with clients instead of, you know, hiring someone on board. And um, 
and in the United States too, healthcare. Like, holy crap. Do you know how much health? I'm sure you do because Sendable probably employed some Americans, right? Yeah. 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 It It is. I mean, (laughs) Casey and I are paying like. We pay nothing. Yeah. We're we're paying like $45,000 a year for just the two of us for healthcare. Right? Like, oh my God. Yeah. That's that's crazy. crazy. Like, you know, we got to have basically. Whatever, a hundred customers, a hundred SparkToro customers every month are just covering healthcare for us. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the stress of you know what 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 often happens in a company environment, um, and we went through this. Gosh, I went through this with so many people on the team. Right, is you you have someone who's underperforming, and you try to figure out, okay, is that because of their role and responsibility? Is it because of their skill set that needs to be upgraded? Is it because of the the management leadership? Um, team, right? And so you look for, try and figure out all these factors and, you know, and eventually you probably come to the place of like, okay, maybe they're not the right fit for the team, but you know, like, let's give them another three months, see if we can upgrade these things and we'll do skip levels and we'll do, you know, all this coaching and maybe we can invest in a mentorship program, yada, yada. And then, ah, those three months come and go and they're not quite right. All right, we'll give them one more month. Ah, they're still not performing. Okay. We're going to let them go. Now we'll put out a job description for their Mm -hmm. job. Now we'll spend three to six months hiring for that position. Okay. We finally got someone who's a match. Ah, now it's three months of onboarding until they're sort of performing. Oh my God, you've lost a year or 18 months. Could have developed a new feature in that time. Yeah. I mean, you hire a consultant the first week they don't deliver what they said they were going to deliver. You're like, (laughs) bye-bye. Right. (laughs) You hire another consultant. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. So I, I don't care if there are, you know, if they're technically whatever the, I don't know, the hourly wage equivalent is 50 bucks an hour for an in-house person versus 300 for an outsourced. I don't care. I will happily pay that $300. That's, that's my sense. Right. And it's, it's very tough to, you know, when you hire a consultant, especially in places like marketing and conversion rate optimization and, and, um, you know, whatever email, uh, authoring, onboarding, like all these sorts of skills around, um, these complex marketing and sales funnel stuff and, and SaaS onboarding stuff. Oh my God. I mean, the quality of work that those people do on day one with their experience load and their whole team, incredible, just incredible versus, you know, hiring someone. And then basically you're trying to train them up, which means if you don't have skills that are better than the best consultants out there, how are you going to get that person, you know, up to, up to speed? It's pretty tough. Uh, So I'm curious with SparkToro, how much uh, focus are you putting on SEO this time? Versus like brand building, brand awareness, that kind of thing? Um, very little, to be honest. Very, very little. The, the biggest thing that I care about SEO-wise is that um, more and more people every month search for SparkToro and that branded search is our, is our sort of dominant win. I really, you know, I look at a lot of, ex- of examples out there of what's been successful for other businesses that are sort of building new categories. And it is not ranking for whatever hundreds or thousands of keyword phrases that people search for that are semi-related to the business. It is, they win on brand and then years later, they start to dominate the rest of their category once they've built up, um, built up that, that all those brand signals with Google and, you know, a, a really nice traffic engine around it. And so that has been my priority with SparkToro is just how do we 
tell the story of what the company does and the problem it solves and who it can solve it for, get people to understand the data set, get people to understand this, this sort of new way of doing market research. And then in the, in the far flung future, I can imagine, you know, I don't know, sometime in the next couple of years, three years, maybe we hire an agency to do a ton of, you know, content and SEO for us mm-hmm. that will probably, you know, I think the other problem um, Gavin, I'm sure you saw this like with, um, with some of the features and sort of ways that Sendable would help is there's not necessarily people who are going out and searching for a solution to that problem. They don't mm-hmm. know about the problem. They don't know about your solution to it. And so, you know, at Moz, lots of people search for SEO software, keyword research tools, you know, whatever, link building, all that kind of stuff. And those are very good predictors that SEO, that Moz's SEO software was a good match for them. With SparkToro, mm-hmm. when someone's, you know, what are they going to search for? Um, show me which podcasts my audience listens to so mm-hmm. I can go target them on those podcasts. It's interesting. Nobody's searching for that. Yeah. <laughs> people don't even, yeah, people don't even think, oh, podcast marketing, I should do that. Right? So you have to, they've you got have the to, like, problem. Yeah. yeah. They don't know they yeah. have the problem. Yeah. So you yeah, have to market right. in a very different way, yeah. right? The, the marketing is essentially who's my audience, where do they hang out and spend time? How do I go tell the story there? Okay. It's much more yeah. like um, Airbnb, right? Than like WeWork. WeWork is essentially competing for whatever, commercial office space in all these cities, you know, temp office space, whatever. Airbnb is like, hey, uh, don't you want to let uh, strangers come live in your house for a while? Wait, what? I don't, no, I don't. I don't want that, yeah. right? But then, but then, ten years after it launches, people are like, "Yeah, I do want to have strangers come stay in my house." That's true. It's <laughs> brilliant. So one of our one of our kind of favorite topics to talk about are, are ads. So we wanted to know what what kind of your thoughts on on um, how ads are becoming. We okay. So we believe that they're becoming far less effective these days. People are using ad blockers. Mm. And we've always just kind of had this belief that trust is the number one currency these days. So um, I don't want to give you my views necessarily, but wanted to hear what your views are. How do you feel about ads currently? Uh, So let's see. Personally, Mm -hmm. like almost every consumer, I think that ads aren't that effective on me. And statistically Mm -hmm. speaking, as a marketer, I understand that ads are ludicrously effective I just don't understand how or why, oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So like what I, what I want to believe is, you know, oh, this, this ad, that's not, that's never going to work. Who does that work on? That's not effective. And then I look at the statistics behind advertising. I'm like, oh, well, impressive. I, you know what? <laughs> I am wrong. You know, it, I, I, I was incorrect. Now, what is absolutely true for every marketer who, who comes across this problem is that in, the overwhelming majority of sectors, advertising alone is um, a big waste of money until and unless you have built up brand loyalty, trust, and knowledge in your space, mm. right? So like, um, I don't know, jeans company you've never heard of advertises on some billboard or advertises in your Instagram feed or, you know, shows up in the Google ads. You're just going to ignore them. You're going to click on the one that you know. But then like, oh, you're walking through, I don't know, a mall and you see that jeans company. You're like, oh, 
I guess they're, I guess they're a real company or you go to Nordstrom and like, you see that brand again, you're like, Oh yeah, I, I heard of them somewhere. And, and then, you know, you see the Instagram ad again a few months later, and then you, I don't know, hear an ad for them on the radio or a podcast. And then you hear a friend talk about it. And then the Instagram ad works really well because you have heard, you've been exposed to them and you're like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Let me, let me try them me. out. Yeah. It's, it's right. It's, yeah. it's grown on you. And yeah. what a ton of marketers, especially startup marketers, early stage marketers tend not to understand is that long journey of brand awareness and the impact that, you know what? It's almost like compounding interest. You know, you put money in the bank, the 3% interest rate seems like nothing, but then 10 years later, you're like, Hey, I got some money. Mm. That's kind of nice. Right. So, you know, whatever stock investing or, or all, all these kinds of things and brand investments are the same way. If someone hears about you and that message is consistent and you're consistently saying, we make jeans for, I don't know, you know, um, for summer, we have summer weight jeans. You know, they're very, the material's light. The denim isn't too thick. You don't get too sweaty in them. And you're, and then, you know, one summer you're like, huh, you know, I do kind of want to wear jeans to that restaurant. I do wish, what was that jeans company that does the, the lightweight thing? Ah, I can't remember their name. A couple of weeks later, oh, Instagram ad for, that's the one. <laughs> Click. <laughs> Right. And what what's happened, like yeah. what's what's actually happened is a ton of brand touches over a long period of time. You know, look, ad blockers, they they don't tend to work in your apps. Right. And that's where a ton of ads are happening. Yeah. Um, YouTube's ads are rarely blocked. Facebook's ads are rarely blocked. Um, ad blockers are installed by a pretty consistent, you know, like the same sort of 10 to 15 percent of the population. There's a lot of people who just, they don't use them. It's, you know, the, everyone was like, oh, they're going to grow like crazy. Yeah, they didn't really grow all that crazily. You know, there's a lot of preventative tactics that that people are taking on that and a lot of ad funded sites still. Um, but should you, if you can do marketing of other kinds first and get people to know about you mm. and position yourself through sources they trust, your ads are going to work way better. In terms of uh, marketing flywheel, yeah. So do you do you use HubSpot's definition or do you have your own definition? Sure, sure. So when I think of a flywheel, right? What I it's essentially this this big contraption from the industrial age, right? Where you you store energy by by having a you know a giant mechanical wheel that spins around on inertia, and you store electricity in it, and then you can sort of put friction against it to draw that electricity off. And the the concept is that. It's really hard to get that wheel spinning initially, but once it starts going, it's very low friction. It scales with decreasing friction and get, gets inertia going. And, oh man, that's, that's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. If you if you can pull it off, incredible. And so the um, my model, my mental model for a flywheel is that it works in two ways. A marketing flywheel specifically works in, can work in two ways. It can work either that you, every time you do your marketing thing, whatever that thing is, um, you know, uh, guest on a podcast, um, sponsor a webinar, um, speak at an event, uh, publish a blog post, send a tweet, right? send a tweet. So anytime you do any of those marketing things, either the next time you do it, it's easier 
takes, takes less effort for you to do it, or the next time you do it, it's more effective, right? The input stays the same, but the output increases or the input decreases and the output stays the same. That if you can get that going over time, again, you get that compound interest where like, uh, the first, you know, I published a blog post. I have one subscriber. It did nothing. I published another blog post. Hey, hey, I got one more subscriber. Okay, that that's two. Next week, another blog post. 20 weeks from now. All right, we got 150 subscribers. Three years from now. Oh my God. We have 30,000 subscribers to our blog. This is almost literally the numbers that Moz had. Like when I first, when I started blogging, right? It's just boop, 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 boop. Every night took me the same amount of work to blog, right? Every blog post took the same, but every new subscriber meant more people reading every post, which meant more output per same input. Mm. Those blog posts started mm. ranking for more keywords. More people started following our social channels, more people on our email newsletter. Mm-hmm. Boom, 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 right? The audience grows and grows and grows. This is really hard to do with ads alone. This is why I don't love mm-hmm. the advertising only model. It just, you know, the, every input, Google wants to basically be like same output, right? Facebook, same yeah. output. Yeah. Or <laughs> ideally, hey, uh, that, they look like they're being really successful with their ads. We better charge them more. Let's take more of that margin. <laughs> Wall Street wants to see yeah. growth from us, right? <laughs> so yeah. you're going to pay more. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's how yeah. I think of the marketing flywheel. I'm not sure if that's what HubSpot thinks of it as. Um, I think it's similar. I don't know what the definition of HubSpot is either, but um, I think um, something we spoke about in the last episode was about how you should pay attention to your, your smaller customers yeah. because they, they spread the word of mouth, the awareness. Yeah. So it's this compound effect of kind of spending time on smaller customers. They become your promoters. They introduce other customers to you. And the more customers you can delight, the more they refer other customers to you, essentially. Yeah, Gavin, so did you that's find... That's how we grew I mean, Sendable I, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find with Sendable that your smaller and mid-sized customers, agencies, consultants, whatever, that they were essentially like more likely to be vocal about their 100%. love for your product? Then like big, you know, big companies, enterprise company joins, no one will say Mm. shit about, you know, they're like, what do we use for social media? We can't talk about that. Mm. 100%. Yeah. So for us, we we have, we have tons of agencies. Agencies want to keep obviously the tools they use close to them. So they they don't want to share what tools they use. But then we have have loads of freelancers and influencers as well who use Sendable. So if you can find those influencers with the biggest followings, get them to share their love of the product, that kind of thing. Suddenly you have this, again, this flywheel effect yeah. where they're writing about Sendable, recording videos. Yeah. yeah. And delight them as much as possible, I was going to say. Yeah. 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 That's it. yeah. I mean, the yeah. I think the really interesting thing, and this is like, it's like a language problem that we have in marketing universe where when people, when marketers hear the word influencer, yeah. I, they think of one thing only half naked person on Instagram with six pack abs who's like, Oh, I do lots of push-ups, or I don't know, probably they use weights or whatever, but you know, like, and, and they're like, how do we, um, how much do we have to pay that person to pose with our product in front of their whatever beach? And that is a, as mind numbingly dumb way to think of influence. Right. And so as we, as we started spark Toro, which is, which helps you find what I call sources of influence because I can't call them influencers anymore because we don't help you find six pack ab dudes on Instagram. 
right? Like the, the, um, I think that language has actually shrunk the awareness and the thoughtfulness around who in my market influences the rest of my market. What are the, you know? What are the podcasts they listen to? What are the blogs they read? What are the industry newsletters they subscribe to? What are the events that they go to? And no one, no one is like, oh, well, this event is an influencer, or that email newsletter is an influencer, or that podcast host is an influencer. That that language has been broken by sort of this mm. this trend around what an influencer is. Just, you have to be on Instagram or YouTube, basically. It's very interesting. Well, TikTok. Yeah. Um, so. I, I don't know. Like, I, I think this is one of those really frustrating things where seven years ago, eight years ago, I could have said, oh, SparkToro is an influence, influence marketing tool. Mm. And now I can't say that because that means something different. Yeah. Well, really, it's really fascinating how language, you know, can change the direction of like an industry like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm so, so curious, right, about this like process with, with Sendable, right? You left the company, sold it now, um, and you're not involved at all? Uh, so I'm with the company for six months. Uh, six months, okay. Three months left. Yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. And do you, yeah. I mean, do you know what you're going to do after that? Do you like have ideas and plans? Uh, do you have, a, I don't know if you have a non-compete. I know with Moz, I had to sign a non-compete, for example, when I left as part of my severance. Um yeah, and that that experience is always fascinating to me, right? Because it's so, I don't know. I don't know if you like stare at the next six months and you're like, okay, I'm excited to do these things. And then, oh my God, the universe opens up and it feels like both a weight lifted and a new weight put on, right? Because you can do anything. Oh God, anything. Anything <laughs> is so big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, to, to be honest, I was working on something last year. So during COVID, I saw this, this big gap in the market, this opportunity. And I built something and a few people started using it and said, how can I use this thing? So it was like a little side project, right? I haven't, haven't coded in a long time. I've been a CEO for, you know, for ever many years. Um, so I started coding again, built this little product. Um, people loved it. That also made me realize maybe it is a good time to mm. sell the company. This thing has it, it got some traction you know, on the side but I had no time to actually focus on it. Uh, so I'm pretty excited yeah. about it. And I think just to your point about categories, I believe you have to create a category these days to stand out and position yourself in the market. So I'm, I'm going to create a new category, um, which this product will kind of support. Watch the space. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely will. And and of course, um, Martin, Gavin, you like, you like if, if you need something from me, you have my support. You, awesome. you know, I, I got your back. I, I love, I love folks trying to help in this way. I think that's just, um, yeah, very, very meaningful. And man, it would be, you know, it's just, it's what I want to see more of in the world. I want to see more bootstrapped and like, you know, zebra and indie style startups instead of, I don't know, like, you know, venture back startups are like, Hey, you know, we're at what are 10 million ARR and we need to get to a hundred in the next couple of years and blah, blah, blah. Do you want to come yeah. like join our board, be an advisor? Just like, no, no, I don't. Yeah. I, I recognize that you're offering to pay a lot. Like I appreciate that you, <laughs> you know, came to me and also, you know, it's not that I don't want you to succeed in particular, but I don't want more companies like you to be in the market. Mm. Right. I want, I want 
more competition from lots of small and medium businesses, not a few companies that sort of mm. win the whole pie or die trying. Like those yeah. monopolies do not yeah. excite me. You, you, um, you know, you mentioned in our in our email chat we were talking about Darmesh from HubSpot, who's like kind of a you know a friend and um, and colleague, and he, I, yeah, he and I have this like different perspective where he's like I. I want to fund and see those, you know, rocket ship companies because I think they inspire more entrepreneurs and they inspire like more market growth. And I have this like, ah, I don't, I don't know if they do like, I trust you, man, but also I am nervous about that. Like I'm, I'm nervous about what happens when a big player comes into a space and sucks all the oxygen out of the room and all the opportunity like Google has done that in so many spaces. Say, and it happens in retail just, yeah. all the time also. Yeah. The small little independents right? versus the big chains. Yeah. Getting yeah. destroyed. Yeah. I was just I was just thinking as you were talking, it kind of reminds me of like whose words are you gonna is go, are gonna resonate more? The you know, the kind of artist who's who's music is produced for them and they're told to sing these these words basically versus the person who writes and sings their own mm-hmm. their own stuff. You know who, what's going to resonate oh, more? Yeah, Martin, I love that yeah. you said that because I, yeah. I think that many of us are artists trapped in entrepreneurial bodies. Amazing. Like, what we really want to do, what we really want to do, is create art, yeah. right? Yeah. We want we want to see this yeah. this vision, this thing yeah. exist. We want to help this problem be solved in this beautiful and unique, special way. And mm. look, and we are you know, we are cognizant of the capitalist system that we live in and of the, the power of having financial freedom and independence. So we try and align that, right? We try and align our art with the, with the financial side. Um, and oftentimes it corrupts it, but when it doesn't, it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful yeah, when you can have anything. this, like, well, I always wanted this. Let me, let me see if I can make, make a that. And have my art exist in the world. I, I want Sendable to help these people. I want it to help them in this way. I want it to do this for them. It's so cool, awesome. right? It's just yeah. actually it's, it's crazy because when I, I guess when I started all those years ago, I believed just like like Mark Zuckerberg raised funding to start yeah. Facebook. I thought you have to raise funding to start a company. Yeah, I remember that's that. that's the mindset I had back then. You know, and I thought that's the only way you can grow something. So I was I was just naive, I guess, and I at the time I actually I gave away ten percent of the company for nothing. Um, I kind of made a mistake, and uh, um, I was working for these these two. Um, actually, I had a boss at the time working for this software consulting firm, mm-hmm. and they said for you to keep your job, give us half your company, and we'll, we'll let you kind of work on Sendable one day a week. We'll take half, help you with uh, kind of hosting, introductions, networking, etc. Nothing materialized, but I was able to negotiate it down to ten percent. And then after I realized they were just trying to keep me in the job and kind of run the development operation, Oof. I kind of uh, just quit my job. I quit my job. I had six months of savings. Um, and I ended up just trying to make this thing successful. Like, how could I turn nothing into a profitable business? Because back then, it had like $400 a month in MRR, basically, when I quit my job. Yeah. And I had to buy back the 10%. All my savings went into buying back this 10% of the company. And I had literally had, yeah, six months to make this thing profitable. So kind of, it was also a bit of like desperation. Yeah. <laughs> How can you turn this thing into a business from just a hobby or a side project? Yeah. Um, and yeah, just so glad that I, I did. And it was obviously- it I was, was just about difference. to say that. <laughs> you just said, she, she said, quit your job, enough. go all in, I, I believe in you. Enough, and, uh, enough, enough. 
Like, it got to a point where I was like, I don't actually care where we get the money from. Like, we were newlyweds also. We'd be married like a month or something at the time. <laughs> and we were, I was just like, enough, enough. Just figure it, like, we'll figure it out, you know. I feel like this is this is real love, right? Real love is saying, I, Sink or I swim. want you, my partner. <laughs> yeah. I want, well, and like, yeah. I want you, I believe in you. Yeah. And also I'm happy to support this and I don't need, I don't need, I'm willing to trade stability and comfort for your happiness and opportunity. That Geraldine did the same thing for me. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, as I was saying to you before, you know, we went live, but um, we recorded, but um, I, I kind of saw the kind of transition in Gavin. So I could see how down, how low he was. And then I could see this kind of, buzz and firecracker kind of experience so i could recognize that and then it's sudden you know so I, it's very easy to spot i suppose in an entrepreneur it's very easy to notice the difference yeah i i mean i think look yeah. it's really it's really weird to have these you know you have these conversations and Silicon Valley tech world, it's like, okay, billion dollar moonshots and unicorns. And how did you get massive traction? How do we get, you know, um, uh, blitz scaling and those type of things. And I, you know, I kind of have like a, what am I excited about? I am excited about the art, right? Of startups. I am excited about the love that people feel for each other in partnerships that help these companies get started. I am excited about the ways that entrepreneurs help their customers and like how that enables. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you a crazy experience, super crazy experience. I got an email out of the blue um, from a young woman, turns out she's very young. And she was like, Hey, can I have you on my podcast? You know, it's, it's called the young at heart podcast. And I was like, Oh uh, yeah. All right. You know, I, I listened to like a snippet of an episode. I was like, sure. Yeah. It sounds, sounds fun. Happy to do it. We do the podcast and, um, you know, she, she asked good questions, very thoughtful. <laughs> she, she told me on the podcast, she's like, oh, well, I'm only 18 years old. I'm a, I'm a college student. Like, and this podcast is like part of my project. I was like, my God, you're so accomplished. This is, this is crazy. Amazing. And then I get an email from her. I get an email from her. I almost want to share it with you. It, yeah. Thank you for your interview and a funny story. My parents are uh, immigrants and refugees from the Sri Lankan civil war. We came to Canada with nothing. During my formative years, I remember our financial situation being really tight, scrounging and saving for everything. Fast forward a few years, and my dad stumbles upon Moz as he's working to build a marketing agency from nothing. And today, he's the founder and CEO of this this company, and it's successfully bootstrapped um, with a financing model that's that's similar to SparkToro's and completely flipped the financial situation for those two refugees um, what's even funnier, I didn't realize the connection until I just now told my dad about our interview. He started fanboying about the blog you ran and how it influenced Equa's whole founding strategy. Amazing. Uh, that's amazing. What what do you what do you want to do with your life, right? Yeah. Like as an entrepreneur, I just want I want a thousand, ten thousand more stories like this. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's real influence. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's that's what we can do that's special. You know. If I get yeah. to 10 million ARR or 1 million ARR, mm. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, not what matters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got way more out of receiving that email probably than, yeah, absolutely. I mean, any revenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, 
You should go on Anjali, uh, uh, Anjali's podcast because it's, uh, yeah, and chat with her. She's amazing. <laughs> 18. I don't know. What were you doing at 18? I was like, oh, no. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. Figuring out who in my, you know, who in my neighborhood could sneak a beer or something. Right? Awesome. One final question for you uh, before we uh, end, the, end the show. It's just, uh, can you share any tactics that you've used um, to propel your businesses forward that weren't necessarily scalable? Yeah. I mean, I'll say the biggest one for me, Gavin, is uh, personal email. So I do, we do a ton of basically, uh, you know, it's mass mailers and then individual emails. Everyone who signs up for SparkToro, I email them personally from my email address with like a little, you know, welcome thing. I visit their website. Like I, I check out sort of who they are and what they're trying to do. Uh, I often help them do, you know, customized onboarding. Like oh, I'm trying to find landscapers, uh, you know, and figure out their audience. So like that is not, it doesn't feel very scalable, but you know, we've got almost 700 customers and I've been able to do it with every single one of them. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, we send, mm. yeah, we send mass mailers to like 30,000, 40,000 subscribers with my reply email address and sometimes I'll get a thousand replies, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm just crushed for, you know, a few weeks and then I dig out from under it. But lots of interesting opportunities yeah. and, you know, chances to meet people come from that, too. So mm-hmm. I like being able to do that as a founder. I feel like it it really connects me to our customers and audience. You know, you could do it with a sample. If your customer base is too big, but you're the founder, you, you could take 10 percent and be like, we're going to send it from my personal email address. It's my, I'm going to be the reply to. I'm going to answer them all. I'm going to have these conversations. I'm going to jump on these calls. I I love that connection. There's so many emails I get that are like, "Hey, would you uh, connect me with your like sales team?" I'm like, "We are now connected. <laughs> sales team present." <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much, Rand, for joining us on our first guest podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. I was absolutely um, thrilled to join you. And and by all means, if there's people I can connect you with for future podcasts, or you have other topics you want to discuss, I am uh, I am available. And I wish you all the best with your next six months and, and then with your journey beyond too. Thank you.